tempered through fire, all survivors possess wisdom and grit. Reclaim power and revel in life. I'm Kelsey Harper. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a survivor and clinical psychologist, and this is The Initiated Survivor. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Hi, everyone. So I'm back here to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, go through what the different symptoms are and how this connects with how we understand trauma, how this operates for survivors and, you know, what we see statistically many survivors experience around this versus the general population. So the last episode about trauma, I talked about the definition of trauma and how we have a traumatic exposure, which is very common for many people to experience and that most people will experience exposure to a traumatic incident in their life and a trauma response, which is having that fight, flight or freeze response, um, that instinctual response, which is also very common and very normal. And many people will experience that as well. And then we have ongoing trauma symptoms, which is actually very rare that people develop this in the response to a traumatic event. So you'd say that traumatic events and traumatic exposure, as well as traumatic responses to that event, very, very common. And this is not what we mean when we say somebody, quote unquote, has trauma. When we say that they have trauma, we usually are meaning that they have ongoing trauma symptoms. And this is essentially when our body and our brain are stuck in that trauma response, the fight, flight, or freeze in a prolonged way that we haven't actually actively resolved that and that symptoms have persisted in this way for at least 30 days or more after they have started. And so I'm going to go into what PTSD is and what that looks like and really how this happens. Again, we think of trauma or PTSD as being a psychological injury in the sense that an outside event has occurred and it has caused a shift in the way the brain perceives the world with its senses and the way that it physiologically activates or deactivates certain things in the body. This is very different than just nervous system overwhelm. Nervous system overwhelm is what we would call distress. Um, And that's very oftentimes very heightened emotion, emotional activation, and that has a very different kind of impact on our brain and not necessarily is actually going to create that fundamental shift in how our brain perceives the world and activates and acts on the world. Distress is something that is also very normal, very common in the face of stressful events. So with coming back to post-traumatic stress disorder... PTSD is defined by both incident and impact. And so this is important because a lot of people out in the world arguing about trauma try to focus on that the only thing that's important is impact. Does it cause certain symptoms? And that the incident doesn't actually matter, which is not actually true in how our field has um, developed its definition over years and years, decades upon decades of research and clinical interventions and designing clinical interventions. Um, So the first thing that's really important is just to establish that like the the psychological field and mental health field as a whole actually does really know a lot about trauma. We have researched this thing up and down and we continue to research it and our research just continues to expand and get more specific 
which is wonderful because it gives us really great interventions and helps us really understand and know what's going on in the brain. Um, and that we do have very specific definitions that are supported by this research. Unfortunately, we have seen in the in the communities, in social media, and even with some mental health professionals that they have kind of strayed from this path of rigor that we see with um, sticking to what is a science and evidence-based engagement of psychology and mental health services and move more towards uh, their own personal ideological approach and more just reinforce what they believe to be trauma versus what we actually know trauma to exist based upon the science that that we have. So when we come back to post-traumatic stress disorder, this is just one of the ways that trauma can manifest in a person. It's one of the more common ways that typically when somebody is suffering ongoing trauma, we mean that they have developed PTSD. But there are a number of disorders that are in the trauma or stress stressor-related disorders, including dissociative disorders that also can be caused by trauma exposure. And so again, like I said in the first episode, the incident and impact approach that we see with our diagnosis of PTSD, the incident is exposure to actual or threatened death serious injury or sexual violence. And this can be either our own direct experience, uh, witnessing this happening to somebody else, hearing that this happened to a close friend or family member, or that the we experienced repeated or extreme exposure to details and information about a traumatic event that happened. Um, so that's in the case of EMTs, police, first responders, therapists, social workers, etc. And again, what we're talking about with traumatic incident is that, again, it's supposed to be something that is actual or threatened death, a life-threatening event, or something that has the potential to cause very serious injury or sexual violence. And so that immediately already rules out a lot of things that people will use the word trauma or traumatic to add to this. And that we actually do have words to define those other things, but for whatever reason, we have generalized trauma to mean those things. I think that has more to do with our efforts to try to validate that all of people's suffering and pain does warrant attention and care and support, which is very true. Everybody's does. And you don't have to have trauma in order for that to happen. But for example, when we talk about learning that trauma occurred to a close family or friend, it has to be specifically that it was either an incident of violent or accidental death, again, or sexual violence or serious injury, that it's not something that we would say is normative or normal life experience like death from natural causes, end of life, or death due to a terminal or chronic illness. And that's not to say that any of those things aren't going to elicit distressing emotions and that we actually might notice that we feel very differently or we notice ourselves to experience the world very differently after those events happen. That's of course going to happen. That's actually about attachment relationships, how we connect to other people and a grieving process that occurs. And that it's important to acknowledge that those two warrant actually getting support and care from people. Um, that going through grief and going through chronic and terminal illness is not something that you have to do alone and it's not invalid or not quote unquote bad enough if it's not trauma. 
Just because it's not trauma does not mean that it's not worthy of getting help and support. Some other things that I've heard that people call traumatic are things like major breakups or divorces, having crisis or, or certain amounts of fights and intense fights with friends and family members. And again, while we would say that those are actually really important transformative experiences, they may not necessarily meet the criteria for trauma. Again, it doesn't have to meet the criteria of trauma to matter. It is actually important to get help and support. We're just being specific that trauma causes a specific thing to the brain to happen and is a specific injury. And it's not the same thing as what happens in those cases. And so, but those actually can cause other things to happen that you can get support around. And so with PTSD, we see the symptoms are clustered in a a bunch of different types of experiences. You know, we think of it as persistent re-experiencing of the trauma, avoidance of stimuli, alterations to thoughts and mood, alterations in arousal and reactivity. And so I'll go through all of these different things. So re-experiencing the traumatic event, this kind of can come as what we call flashbacks. And a flashback can be where your body or your brain or both believe that it is back in the traumatic experience. Um, So that can be either seeing visualizations of the trauma happening again, your body thinking that it's experiencing that again because a trigger has occurred and it's going to respond accordingly. Uh, that traditionally, you know, is, is one of the key signs of PTSD is re-experiencing. This can also come up as intrusive involuntary memories and recurrent memories of the event. Like if all of a sudden the image flashes in your mind or you remember it, we can see this also with children where they engage in what we call traumatic play, which is where they engage in some sort of narrative play around the incident where they just kind of keep repeating the incident over and over and over and over again. That can also happen in our thoughts as well. This can also happen during our sleep with nightmares or dreams where we are dreaming or having nightmares about the traumatic event. We might also have dissociative reactions. This is similar to like the flashbacks where we're not completely in touch with what's happening around us in the present day we're actually thinking that we're back in the traumatic event, or we can dissociate, disconnect from what's going on in the world outside of us and have a dissociative response in the moment where we are not completely in touch with our body, with the present moment, with our awareness. Intense prolonged distress when we are exposed to certain cues or triggers. Cues and triggers and trigger, the word trigger has also unfortunately been expanded to just mean anything that causes an emotional reaction. And again, being specific, that would be just we're having an emotional reaction versus a trigger where we're thinking that is it is activating a trauma response so that it is something that is associated with a traumatic experience and it's causing trauma symptoms to occur, similar to like dissociating, fight, flight, or freeze getting activated. So for me, some of these experiences where there's certain smells Um, Like there is a laundry detergent that smells exactly 
like a smell that was present at my assault. And any time that I smell that, I will in feel intensely afraid. And I can notice myself like getting very hypervigilant, which is where I'm looking around, looking to see, you know, is the threat somewhere around. And it can oftentimes cause intrusive memories where all of a sudden I'm hit with memories of what happened, you know, and am unable to get that out of my mind. Um, now I've been able to learn a lot of skills around how to cope with those moments so that it doesn't put my entire life on hold while I go through that, but it still sometimes can be a bit of a struggle. Certain music or certain songs that remind me of the person um, that assaulted me will also trigger a similar response as well. Uh, certain words and and certain people, you know, that look a certain way, like if they have a certain rhythm to their walk, a certain gait, if they are wearing a baseball cap a certain way, that will also tend to trigger some of that response for me. And again, that, that response is usually for me, it's a freeze and a hypervigilance of I stop in my place and I'm I'm looking for where's the threat or what's going on. If it's a person that, that has some of those things, it's usually like I'm very focused and fixated on them to see, you know, is this, is this the perpetrator coming at me again? And again, I've definitely learned a lot of skills and through some of my recovery work to be able to diminish that response. But some of those things still linger. And I think that for many survivors, we have an experience of many symptoms will still linger around, especially around specific triggers that still just will not get resolved. And typically we're just learning how to cope with them. And this also comes with physiological reactions, feeling our hearts start to race, our, our breath start to get shallow, feeling like really cold or really hot, feeling that activation again of I'm about ready to fight something off or flee, or my body is launching into the freeze response um, and I'm disconnecting from my body in some way. So for persistent avoidance, this means that whether consciously or unconsciously, we start to avoid things in our life that remind us of the trauma. This is also one of the set of symptoms that can generalize very quickly. And generalize means that it now we avoid several things that maybe are somewhat related or maybe completely unrelated, but we just start avoiding things in general. This can be external things, like we avoid external stimuli by isolating to home, by not meeting up with people, by avoiding crowds, by avoiding the location where certain things happened, by avoiding certain experiences that might also elicit similar experiences to the assault, or internal avoidance, which is things like we're avoiding things that would trigger memories or would trigger some of the that re-experiencing. So for example, for me, I noticed uh, very quickly after um, the assault happened, I was isolating. I actually, I didn't notice it very quickly. It happened very quickly. I noticed long afterwards that this had been going on for a long time and that the isolation was also very unconscious in the way that we just always kind of like too busy, too tired, working too hard, whatever it was to really go out and explore the world and explore like the neighborhood I lived in, to go hang out with friends, to go do stuff outside of work really rarely ever did that. When before I was assaulted, I wasn't necessarily like this wonderful social butterfly. I'm pretty introverted, but I definitely enjoyed like going out to dinner with friends, going to people's houses, you know, going to certain events, um, especially anything that felt very community-based because I love 
getting to know the neighborhood that I live in or getting to know different areas of the cities that I live in and would love to go and explore. And after this happened, I did not make time for any of that stuff to happen. And usually I, the only things that I knew outside of like my home and my work were things that were very nearby my home or my work, things like maybe restaurants that did easy takeout, convenience stores, that kind of thing. And that's what we mean by generalization. It's not that the entire world reminded me of my assault or caused triggering memories to occur, but that I had started to isolate more and more and more. And I think for me, I think the origin was that like any kind of groups of large, large groups of people would really cause a lot of fear for me. And it's not because anything happened in a group of people, but it's more because that made me feel more and more exposed and at risk. And because part of my trauma involves stalking, the fear is often that he's going to just show up somewhere. And so in a large group of people that I would not be able to know if he is there until he's already right in front of me. And so the isolation that I would experience was around trying to control that fear, but it ultimately led to me really not going anywhere, seeing anybody, and oftentimes actually losing a lot of relationships simply because I was not engaging in them. Some other internal things that I avoided, like I avoided listening to some some certain music, I avoided engaging in certain activities. For a while, I had stopped like playing my cello because it reminded me of this this person. And so that was always too triggering too, because my mind would just kind of go back to those different memories. And also see sometimes people utilize substances as a way of avoidance, because when we are drunk or high, we aren't going to be able to think back on some of these things and we're not completely in touch with the world. And that's one of the ways that that people can avoid some of this or cope with some of their symptoms, not necessarily effectively or healthfully or safely, uh, but it is one of the more common ways that people cope with PTSD through substance abuse. So then there's also negative alterations in thoughts and mood. And so this is really important to really look at how this differentiates from other experiences or other disorders that because we're kind of stuck in this survival mechanism, and remember how I said that our senses can get very fixated or focused during fight, flight, or freeze, and it does make it really hard then to provide information to law enforcement when they're asking us questions about what happened, that we actually see this inability to remember important aspects of the event to persist as part of PTSD because we're still kind of locked in that constricted space. But we may have also persistent and exaggerated negative beliefs or expectations about ourselves or the world. So this can be things like when we engage in self-blame, especially when we really fixate on blaming ourselves and have a really hard time letting that go, despite that we know we did not cause this. And this is definitely not helped by our our rape culture world, which has a tendency to blame a lot of survivors for their assault and really pin on us that it's our responsibility to prevent assault. We literally cannot control the behavior of other people. So we cannot stop or control if somebody is going to assault or attack us. But after something has happened, we may have a persistent belief 
that we should have done something and that it's our fault that we did not do something or that we did not make it stop or that we did something to cause it. But we can also have other persistent beliefs like I am broken. I am damaged goods or I am broken in some way. My mind is broken. I'm crazy. Or this belief that the world is inherently an extremely dangerous place. And what we can see is that this is somewhat of our brain trying to make sense of what happened, but also going to out of balance extremes. Yeah, there is a lot of danger that happens in the world, but there's also a lot of other things that happen in the world that are not dangerous as well. And I think I definitely had the thought that I am broken. And it was this experience of noticing the change, the dramatic shift that happened in my brain from before the assault occurred to after the assault occurred and just how it was operating and in many ways feeling like just this persistent brain fog around being able to think about things and problem solve or intellectualize and rationalize things, engage in intellectual conversation, learn new abstract ideas or skills, as well as just like be very, 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 I just felt like my my brain had turned to mud and it felt very, very stuck and it felt very slow moving in a lot of ways. And so it did feel broken, right? Like kind of like a broken bone. And that's what, what we talk about with a psychological injury. This is also something that can persist for people is that they believe that they are broken because this happened, right? And that's an indicator to us that they might have post-traumatic stress disorder. And it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they're thinking things that are completely crazy or inaccurate. Like, for example, the world is inherently a dangerous place. That's not inaccurate. There is danger that happens in the world. But like I said, that's it's just not complete because there's also a lot of things that happen in the world that are not dangerous. There are totally mundane things that happen, normal day-to-day things that happen. There are joyful things that happen, exciting things that happen. The world just kind of keeps happening, you know, and that's maybe a more accurate way of describing it. But it's more that when we see that somebody has a focus and are unable to change the focus from a specific belief, that there might be something happening that has persisted for them. Um, that is not getting repaired naturally the way that we see that trauma usually naturally resolves. We can also see distorted um, cognitions about the cause. Like I said, a lot of self-blame or sometimes magical thinking. This is more common with children where children have magical thinking as part of the way that we try to understand the world. And in part, this is because our brain doesn't work when we're a child, it doesn't work in an abstract way. It's very concrete and at times very imaginal and uses symbolism as a way of understanding things. So when something outside of the realm of our understanding happens as a child, like a caregiver being abusive, for example, is outside of the realm of understanding, the child might engage magical thinking as a way of making sense of it, of like, well, I somehow have the power to control my parents' behavior. And so it must be my fault that they were abusive to me. And if I just try to, you know, be a good girl, be a good boy, be a good child, be a good person, not do certain things, then maybe I can prevent them from getting abusive. We can also see persistent negative emotional states where there's this kind of lingering sense of fear or horror, anger or guilt or shame. It's all very common. 
And as you probably have heard from many of my episodes where I'm talking with survivors, shame is predominantly an emotion that just stays and continues to be experienced. And sometimes we can't even really put words to what that feeling is. It's just this sense of, I have to hide myself. I have to hide what happened and my my truth or my reality. I am a bad person. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve good things. I'm not going to get good things. You know, and fear and horror or anger or rage, they can all be things that can linger around for us when we have PTSD, as well as diminished interest in activities. And this can be a very heartbreaking one because oftentimes those are activities that can help us recover, but that when our brain is activated in such a way, it's not going to have time or space or energy to allow for creative processes or imagination or playfulness. And so oftentimes activities that we used to really enjoy that used to matter to us are ones that we don't really connect with that feeling anymore. And we don't really connect with wanting to do those things. Our motivation might be really low. Our disconnection from this activity being purposeful or meaningful at all can be a part of that. Like I know for me, There's a number of activities that I do that are really deeply meaningful for me in a number of ways, you know, so there's, I engage in certain spiritual practices. I also have a lot of creative practices. I'm a writer. I play music. I play the cello. I learn to play the guitar, as well as connecting with friends and family members, engaging in social justice issues and activism. There's a whole lot of things that really matter to me. And Early on, early days, there was really nothing I was doing except work and home. And I was doing enough to stay alive. I was feeding myself. I was sleeping kind of, you know, that that was pretty much it. I wasn't really doing these other things. I definitely noticed the absence of them. I wanted to be doing these things. I wanted to be writing again, but I couldn't really find the imagination or the creativity to come up with ideas of things to write or how to engage. It was feeling like impossible to start, like the worst possible kind of writer's block. And this is just how the brain has shifted in its functioning. When we're in a survival system, uh, when we're in our survival mechanisms, our brain is prioritizing survival over creativity, naturally. But when we're stuck in that system, that means that for days, months, weeks, years, We are not engaging in those meaningful activities that actually can be the road back to ourselves. This is something that also can be an inroad to recovery is to continue to engage in things and like take the next indicated step when even if we don't feel it. So it can be like, for example, me taking guitar lessons. I loved playing musical instruments and I know that I love learning them and I love taking music lessons and stuff like that but I didn't necessarily feel really enthused and it wasn't because anything was wrong or anything was bad but it was because I had PTSD and I knew that it mattered to me and I knew that there was a part of me that would be excited if I could feel that and it definitely interfered with me being able to like practice and stuff as as much as I wanted to and as much as maybe my guitar teacher wanted me to. Sorry, Michael. <laughs> but I also think that me going to those lessons slowly but surely kind of helped me emerge from the underworld in many ways because it was a part of myself that is very true for who I am. And even though I can't feel it and I couldn't feel it at the time, 
it was still being activated. And, and so when it was time for me to really be able to be fully myself, she was all there ready to show up, which was really good. We can also see detachment and estrangement from others. This can be family members, friends, community members. And this is very common, especially if the trauma is one where community members are not necessarily entirely supportive of the survivor. So this is very common around sexual assault and sexual abuse and family-based abuse, as well as intimate partner violence and gender-based violence, is that we see that because our culture and our community has a tendency to victim blame, gaslight, and validate survivors in a lot of different ways with all of these different things or create cultures of secrecy and put a lot of burden on the survivor to manage this issue, that then there there is estrangement and isolation from relationships. But in many ways also, this is also a product of the shame. When we feel intense amounts of shame, we don't really want to connect with other people because we feel that we're a bad thing, we're a bad person. We don't want to bring that to the people that we care about. We can also feel like they just don't know, they don't understand, they can't relate. It also can be that issues that existed in these relationships may have created a bit of a barrier to being able to trust somebody with this kind of information. But oftentimes survivors feel like they don't want to burden others or they fear how other people might react. And so they withhold this information and then they end up having detached relationships because they're not able to share what really is happening with them. As well, the part of ourselves that feels that sense of connection when we're in relationships with people, when we're connecting with them, when we're talking with them, that sense, that feeling of connection that we get, that nice little rush of oxytocin, that's not happening because our brain has made a fundamental shift. So that sense of connection that we would get, that feeling that we get of connecting to another person does not occur as much or at all when we are active in our trauma symptoms. And so that can also cause us to disconnect then from those relationships because we're not really getting fed by them in a way and that connection is not getting activated. Again, one of the interventions can be around getting support from a therapist, practicing interpersonal skills to be able to maintain relationships in a way that feels safe and structured enough for yourself so that you don't lose your relationships in the process of your recovery while also going and engaging your recovery. The other is, is to offer yourself a lot of compassion and acceptance. It is a part of the process that sometimes relationships get lost and is as part of this. And that's okay too. You know that ultimately whatever it is that you need to do to survive and get through and get, get through your recovery and to get back on your feet is whatever it is that you need to do. And so a lot of acceptance and compassion if that ends up involving disconnecting from relationships. And we also see a persistent inability to experience positive emotions that it's difficult to access experiences of joy or satisfaction or happiness. And this is very common. We also see this in depression and anxiety that those experiences of joy or positive emotions are really diminished, has a lot to do with the brain chemistry around serotonin, oxytocin, that kind of thing. But also, again, because 
when you're stuck in a survival response, which is not activating those parts of our brain. It's not going to activate the parts of our brain that experience satisfaction and joy. It's only activating the parts of our brain that keep us safe. We can see that it's harder and harder to experience those things, despite that we're going about our life and there might be things that are happening that would typically activate joy or happiness or satisfaction. We also can see alterations in arousal and reactivity. And this is kind of that perceptual change um, that I talked about before. This is also a characteristic that is very defining of trauma, that is very different from other types of experiences like high distress or attachment ruptures, that kind of thing. And that we can see that people, and especially children and adolescents who have suffered traumas, a lot of irritability or hyperactivity often can get misdiagnosed as either being, you know, an irritable, obstinate kid or having anger management issues when actually it might be that they are intensely afraid or suffering trauma or have anxiety, that there might be angry outbursts or a sense of recklessness or self-destructive behavior. Sometimes the self-destructive behavior comes from that place of like intense shame and anger and rage. It also can come from an inability to effectively perceive threat and danger. And so engaging in reckless behavior is because the alarm system on our body that would typically tell us like, hey, you need to be a little bit more safe here is already fired up and active constantly. When that's happening, we don't then recognize when it's actually going to get fired up because something in our present day actually is dangerous. It's like, for example, if, if your car alarm is constantly going off all the time, you're not going to go running out there the next time it goes off when maybe somebody is actually trying to steal your car. We just ignore it and we continue to ignore it. And then poof, one day the car gets stolen. That's kind of what's happening here is that we're in such an active state of this sensitivity to the environment that we also may miss the signs that there is actually a threat and we may engage in damaging or destructive behavior. Again, we also, hypervigilance is a very common one. This is one that I experience where it's this constant like trying to ex expand our view of the world, trying to scan the environment to see where's the threat going to come from. It can be like, you know, choosing to sit with your back against a wall or in a corner so you can see the whole room. You know, I noticed for a long while that even like when I would go out with friends to dinner or cafes that I, you know, would constantly watch the door and that every time I would hear the door open and close, my eyes would just shoot over to the door. And then anytime I would see movement happening in my periphery, I, that would grab my focus and it was hard to follow conversations. It's definitely got a bit easier, but I still notice that I tend to prefer to sit, you know, in a place where I can see everything. I tend to watch people as they walk in and out, you know, and that kind of thing tend to be very sensitive and aware as to what's going on around me and in the room. And we also see exaggerated startle responses. And so this means somebody is more sensitive to getting surprised or startled, that their startle response might also be prolonged. They may kind of feel that activation or that, oh my gosh, kind of feeling for a little longer. It might also be really big. Like I, I noticed for myself a couple of times that um, heightened startle response would mean that I would burst into tears when it would happen. And sometimes that startle response is because like my cat decided to jump out at me at one point. 
you know, and it's actually a very nice, pleasant, delightful thing. But instead, it would startle me to the point of, of crying. And we also see difficulty with concentration and attention. Um, this is also very common with children and adolescents. With trauma, it can easily get misdiagnosed as ADHD or, again, as, as a child who's just acting up or not paying attention uh, when, in fact, it might be because, you know, trauma is happening to them or has happened to them. We also see sleep disturbance. It's very common that people struggle with either sleeping not enough, having too shallow sleep, not getting deep sleep, not getting enough REM sleep, or sleeping too much. All of this is very common. This is our physiological system struggling to really get stable and consistent in things. Ultimately, what we see is that symptoms last longer than one month, that it's normal for us in response to a traumatic event to have symptoms, to have that trauma response, that fight, flight, or freeze, and that sense of, you know, either reminders or flashbacks or anxiety and nervousness or dissociation to happen and occur over a couple of weeks after the event. And it's usually typically what happens is they're getting less and less intense over time. We're seeing more and more of that resolution happen, more and more of this shaking off, maybe more rest, and eventually it resolves completely. But when it's persisted for a month or longer, that's when we're looking at something like post-traumatic stress, that the brain hasn't resolved the way that it was designed to, and that it usually indicates that something has gotten stuck here, an injury might have occurred. The other is, is that in order for us to really diagnose somebody with post-traumatic stress disorder, say somebody quote-unquote has trauma, is that they also have significant distress and impairment in important areas of functioning, which ultimately means that these symptoms that you have are causing problems for you in your life. And so that can be things like it's causing problems at work, with your family, with your friends, with the way that you take care of yourself, um, with your connection to other people, your connection to life, all that kind of stuff that it's really interfering with your ability to operate in those realms effectively. So I think the first thing is, you know, now that I've gone through all of the symptoms, please don't diagnose yourself if you believe that it's possible that you have PTSD, feel free to see a mental health professional to get an effective diagnosis and to go through this. Again, you don't have to have all of the symptoms in order to meet criteria for the diagnosis. It's those different domains, and usually it's two or more or one or more in each of those domains to meet criteria. So talk to a mental health professional whether that's a therapist, a psychologist, or psychiatrist, in order to get an accurate diagnosis, if you think this might be true for you. So as far as statistics as to the incidence of what happened, what happens to survivors specifically, we would say we want to compare this to the general population, which we would say that in the face of a traumatic event or even an adverse experience, um, you know, like from the adverse childhood experiences scale or adverse life experiences scale, as well as any traumatic incident, that again, those are very common that happen to us. It's also very common that we have a fight, flight, or freeze response to that. It's very uncommon that we have persisting trauma symptoms and that we actually see that happen in less than 10% of the people 
in the general population who experience a traumatic event. So less than 10% of the general population experiencing a traumatic event is going to actually have lingering trauma. So it isn't actually all that common. With survivors of sexual assault or sexual violence, we see that 94% of survivors have symptoms of PTSD within two weeks of the assault, right? Which is to be expected with a life-threatening event. Like I said, within you know two weeks, we would normally see that those, those symptoms would continue to occur. But that after a month is when we would say that somebody, it's looking like they have sustained trauma. For survivors, we see that 30% still have PTSD after nine months after their trauma. 30% is substantially higher than 10%. We see that 33% of survivors at some point contemplate suicide and 13% attempt suicide. These, all of these statistics are provided to us by RAIN, so I'll put the link in the show notes for that as well. I think anecdotally, when I've talked to people, contemplating suicide is very, very common. It's not every person that does, every survivor, but many survivors have contemplated or thought about suicide. And sometimes those thoughts were very passive and fleeting, and sometimes those thoughts were much more serious. But also 13% following through with attempting suicide is, is also a very, very high startling statistic considering that the general population is usually less than 3%. We would say we see also that 70% of survivors report moderate to severe distress after the assault, which is far larger than survivors of any other crime actually report. So survivors of sexual assault and rape report, 70% of them report moderate to severe distress Whereas people who have experienced other violent crimes, by and large, do not report this moderate to severe distress as much. So we also see that with substance abuse, um, there are heightened rates of um, substance abuse occurring for survivors of sexual assault. Again, it's usually in response to trying to manage symptoms of PTSD. Survivors of sexual assault are 3.4 times more likely to use marijuana six times more likely to use cocaine, and 10 times more likely to use any other major substance, which is, is pretty serious. 38% of survivors report that they have problems at, or at work or school, either with their boss, coworkers, or peers. And 37% report problems with families and friends, like increased arguments, not feeling like they can trust families or friends, or feeling less close in these relationships than they were before the assault. So some more specific statistics, 84% of survivors who were raped by an intimate partner report that they have professional or emotional issues, including moderate to severe distress and increased problems at work or at school. We see that 79% of survivors who were raped by a family member, close friend, or an acquaintance report similar professional or emotional issues, including that moderate to severe distress and increased problems at work or school. And 67% of people raped by a stranger report those professional or emotional issues, including the moderate to severe distress, 
or increase problems at work or school. And this is really important to see because when we talk about the cost of rape and sexual assault, we had this conversation going on in rape culture, and we still have this conversation going on in rape culture, where on one side it's first saying that rape doesn't typically happen, or all these people reporting rape are not true or not not being honest. And then when somebody is able to really break through and they're like, okay, okay, it did happen, right? We see that rape culture response with being like, but it's not all that bad. It really doesn't do much harm. And like rapists, it's okay for them to to take on certain roles and just move on with their life. And that we should be, you know, really reinforcing that rapists should be able to move on and have a good life despite that they did this. And ultimately what we're saying is, is that survivors just don't matter, but also that, you know, maybe surviving sexual assault or rape is commonplace and isn't something that really should be cared about. And so these statistics, when we say that 79% of people who were raped by a family member, close friend, or acquaintance, which we know that that's actually like um, nine out of 10 rapes that occur are by someone the person knows, 79% of those people actually report severe issues in their life. And that means that they're going to be seeking health care, mental health care. They might need disability support. They're going to have issues with work and school. They're struggling in big ways that do impact our community and are at large. 84% of people who are raped by an intimate partner and intimate partner rape is something that continues to go grossly minimized and sometimes even completely disbelieved. Um, that 84% of survivors having experienced that report these severe disruptions in their life. So we, we see that sexual assault is a very unique experience in that the rates at which it is affecting and causing substantial impact in the survivor's life is so higher, so much higher than most other traumatic incidents, other violent crimes as well. And that was something that I think was really important. You know, a few years ago, I um, was a professor at a graduate school for mental health professionals. And I used to teach a class on trauma and talking about like, what is trauma? What does it look like? Um, how do we treat it? How do we intervene? And one of the statistics that was always surprising to everybody, uh, because most people, when you think about post-traumatic stress disorder, we commonly think about like combat veterans and thinking or thinking about people who have survived some sort of violent crime, you know, like an attempted robbery or murder or, you know, combat veterans primarily are the ones on our mind that PTSD and treating trauma is, is treating that. And actually, the statistics show that anywhere from 60 to 70% of the people who have PTSD are survivors of sexual assault and rape. And so that the majority of people that are suffering PTSD that need intervention and need help are survivors. And that is actually a huge part about why I'm trying to build a supportive healing recovering community for us. So again, if you take anything away from this, you know, you might identify that some of these symptoms feel familiar to you. Definitely see a mental health professional if you, def if you want more of a specific diagnosis and would like to pursue treatment or intervention. We have lots of incredibly helpful interventions out there. Remember that we do have that 
assumption or that principle that all survivors know what's best for them at any given time. And that includes about how to recover. So that might not include psychotherapy or therapeutic interventions. It might include something else. It's about coming back to what feels right for you. Thank you so much, everyone. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, know that Rain is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at Rain at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.